people, welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Montpelier Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and I want to welcome to the show three guests. Of course, regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who's one of three representatives from the town of Brattleboro. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too, bright and early. And starting with uh, David Mickenberg, who is um, with the Drug Policy Alliance. Really glad to have you back on the show. Thanks. Great to be here. And then Daniel Quip, who is a select board member in Brattleboro. Hey, Daniel, is this your first time on the show? It is. Yeah. I feel like I've been aware of this show for a long time. I don't think it's I still don't think I should be on it. I merely represent myself. I am not the entire select board. <laughs> we only want, we actually have a caveat, which you might've heard before, Daniel, that in the second half about how we're all just here representing ourselves. Um, but you, I think, were chair of the community radio station when we first started the show on Brattleboro Community Radio. So you are an early yes. and beloved champion. That's Daniel very helped true. me with a lot of audio issues early on. So thank you. Hmm. sir i really appreciate it and uh just so everyone knows uh emily and i are feeling a little nostalgic because we are coming up on our 250th episode here in a couple weeks and we're planning something special but uh yes so thinking of the early days at wvew is giving me warm fuzzies at the moment congrats thank you but we yeah we went to we went to the Brattleboro um, Community Television Award Ceremony a few days ago. Yes, recently. This week, we went to that together, Olga and I. Yes. And we saw Cor being celebrated um, for her many years of service as she leaves um, Brattleboro Community Television. And that was incredible. We also saw that um, clips from all of the other shows and production projects at Brattleboro Community Television and realized we really need to work on our sets a little bit. And um, we'll be thinking about that when we move into our 251st episode. Definitely. And some of our sound, Mm -hmm. uh, our sound quality needs to be worked on a little bit too. But that is actually not why we're here today. We are here today to talk about substance use disorder and some of the approaches that are being used in Vermont and to, to talk about community impacts and are we using approaches that are actually helping or are they creating more barriers perhaps? And I would like to start with, you know, I think substance use disorder is something that people have a reaction to because they each kind of stand in their own place uh, and, and view it from whatever their lived experience is. Or I was sharing before the show, I was talking to a, a friend last night in preparation for this show and while I was looking at policy she she was just like I just want there to stop being needles on the ground like I just want people to pick up after themselves and and that kind of strong reaction I think is what a lot of people bring to this conversation for better or for worse and so I'm curious I'd love to hear from each of you when you look out at the landscape of Vermont and either through your lived experience or through policy or however you view it, what does um, our approach to substance use disorder look like or how does it show up in in your lives? Um, 
Shelby, Daniel, would you mind starting with you and we can work from like the ground up? We can work from the least knowledgeable and expert um, to most. Um, so let's see. For me, this issue is about people and about their impact on people. And what I have observed, and I do I do say observed, you know, I, I actually don't have direct personal experience with this. And as a local select board member, it's an issue that shows up in ways that are really beyond the scope of the kind of things that we make decisions about mm -hmm. typically. Um, but what I've observed through my kind of time here, but also in other towns and cities, um, is the way in which our current kind of drug policies don't really help people. Um, you know, I've seen the impact of like active addiction on people's family members, brothers, sisters, parents, children. Um, and I've seen people struggle with that. And, you know, I have some personal experience about addiction and recovery myself, not from, um, you know, heroin or anything like that. It's from alcohol. And, you know, I feel like these days people don't really talk about alcohol and alcoholism um, in any kind of, I, I actually never hear about it. Um, I used to, um, I used to go to AA meetings. Um, I needed to go to AA meetings and they were helpful. Um, and when I was in those rooms and bearing in mind that the second A stands for anonymous, so I'm not going to talk about mm -hmm. any, you know, specifics. Um, but I, I've definitely heard people being in those rooms because they needed support um, around their drug addiction. And there was always a kind of a caveat, well, alcohol's a drug, you know, you're all welcome here. Um, and, you know, so for me, it's about how people are harmed, how people are kind of pushed to the sidelines, how people are stigmatized, um, and that what we currently have is not working you know, from my select board um, position, you know, I mostly hear about it from like a law enforcement end um, or from a kind of like in my neighborhood, there is a house where there's a lot of drug trafficking occurring and that is causing our quality of life to be greatly diminished. That is true. And, you know, um, yeah, I, I think about the harm caused to people and I would like to see that be reduced. Thank you, Daniel. Emily, how about you? Um, lately, I don't know if it's the weather or the conversations I'm having, but I just feel really overwhelmed by um, sort of the accident of circumstances that um, have kept me from having my life destroyed <laughs> um, or severely impacted by drug addiction. Um, I was talking to, um I was visiting turning point a few weeks ago and talking to the director there um and just sort of remembering my own period of like really um active and deep curiosity with substances 
um, and some pretty unsafe behaviors, um, unsafe towards my own life. I don't think it was actually unsafe towards other people at that point. Um, and how like, you know, in my suburban childhood, I went looking for heroin. I thought it was like, you know, I was reading a lot of William Burroughs. Um, and I just couldn't find any and, um, really how lucky I was in that and how that wouldn't happen now. I would be able to find it if I was 17 and, um, feeling curious, um, and, um, wanting to sort of leave the experience I was having of sobriety. Um, and I have, um, a friend who I actually grew up with in that sort of suburban experience who also moved to Brattleboro to go to college around the same time, um, who sort of did find heroin in those suburban years and um, really stayed um, quite safely um, in terms of impacts on like really strong impacts on other people through a lot of his life, um, you know, continued using opioids for decades. Um, and it caused like great harm to his family in terms of his ability to show up fully emotionally um, and probably, you know, impacts to his um, other pieces of his life. But um, it wasn't sort of the face that we think of when we think of sort of like needles in the park or, um, you know, a trap house. Mm -hmm. And he um, died of an overdose. He actually came on the show yes. and then died of an overdose a little bit after that. Um, and then I think about the conversations that I had, um, that I have with the select board, that I have with folks living in Brattleboro, um, and what like the harms look like of substance use when there are huge economic consequences from it, mm -hmm. um, when folks don't have somewhere safe to use, when folks are using in public, and so we, you know, and there's not a safe place to put needles, um, so we see needles on in the ground when there isn't someone available, um, like in the case of my friend, David, and um, he, you know, when he overdosed, um, when people aren't aware of the subs, you know, when people aren't aware of what's in the drugs that they're using. Um, and so there are unintended consequences to that. And when people don't have sort of the support they need when um, it gets to be too much. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just very aware lately of both like the, luck of my own circumstances um, and privilege and how so many of the harms that we are all grappling with um, sort of across Vermont, both in terms of like loved ones lost and um, unsafe playgrounds, mm -hmm. um, how all of that is really linked to sort of the economic and law enforcement impacts um, and of unsafe supply and that the part of it that I feel like we talk about the most is just, is like the addiction part. Like that's sort of the same, it's like, you know, it's the the same as the alcohol part or the other substances that people are, you know, or gambling, or there's so many things people are addicted to um, that we don't see those same harms with. So anyway, that's when I'm like mulling over a lot this week as the seasons change. Um, I want to hear from David, but just quickly, I'll, I'll interject. I realize I, I was leaving myself out of this. You know, I, um, my experience with uh, substance misuse disorder has been of someone who hasn't used a substance, but has had people in her life and was usually the one um, who was impacted by it. 
um, and uh, not always in positive ways. And so I always have to watch myself in these conversations. I have a certain level of uh, fear and exhaustion of being harmed again. And so I know in these conversations, I sometimes have to be careful. Um, yeah, I have to be careful with my own reactions because I so want to protect myself from mm -hmm. going back to some of the places um, that I went with with friends and, and family. Uh, David, how about for you? Um, lots of ideas, lots of thoughts. This is a great conversation. Thanks. Um, you know, I think we're it's funny because um you know we're looking there's global issues and tragic loss of life everywhere um we're seeing mobilization around that and one of the things i've been thinking about lately is that um in the united states we have a hundred thousand people dying a year of avoidable deaths a hundred thousand people in vermont we have the highest rate that we've had in a long time, 266 people died um, from avoidable overdose deaths, um, a 43% increase from the two-year two period previously. We have a crisis, a healthcare crisis that um, is happening everywhere. Um, and um, the sad thing about it is that uh, it feels like we, because of fear, because of these quality of life issues, that we are returning to policies or attempting to return to policies or having conversations about policies that have just failed. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really, um, uh, you know, I guess I've been doing this work in Vermont long enough. There was a time in Vermont and I was working on these issues when we had no methadone treatment, no suboxone, no hub and spoke, no naloxone, no needle exchange. And those were policy decisions that people were making. The legislature, the governor at the time, Howard Dean, um, there was resistance to harm reduction because there was a feeling that that sort of, you know, these people uh, need to just do better. Um, and um, and we're seeing some of that rhetoric and language now. I live in Burlington and I'm shocked to hear, you know, friends of mine who are good sort of little P progressive people talking about, we just need to get these people away from us. And, um, and the thing is, is that if there was every, any evidence that supported that getting these people away from us somehow um, would be effective for their own safety and our safety, you know, that's a conversation to have. There's just no evidence of that. The evidence is actually the opposite that, uh, further criminalization and punishment and stigmatization causes harm and causes an unsafe community. And so I think it's we're at this really interesting point here in Vermont. We've been doing a lot since we had no methadone and suboxone and needle exchange, and we've we've implemented programs. We're first state in the country to allow for naloxone over the counter. We've been doing a lot related to um the hub and spoke model and there's more to do and so we've implemented policies um and the question now it just sort of feels like we're at this point where what direction are we going to go are we going to go back to a time when um we thought the criminal justice system was the best way to deal with uh, a medical condition substance use disorder is a medical condition and if we think that um filling prisons with people who are 
um, suffering from a medical condition makes sense, then we should be honest about that. I don't think that works. Um, and uh, I think the evidence is overwhelming that uh, that doesn't work and that actually criminalization uh, causes more harm both to the individuals and to the community. And so I think that's the conversation we have to have. We have to take an evidence-based approach to what we're doing around policy. Um, you know, it's also interesting, something Daniel said around alcohol, um, there was a report that came out last year um, uh, saying that there was a 36 percent increase in Vermont uh, for alcohol-related deaths. Um, you know, alcohol and tobacco are two probably the most deadly drugs that we consume uh, in our state and in, and in the country. Um, and um, yet, we are not having the same conversation about those people about those people getting away from us. Like we're not having the conversation saying we should be closing bars down because those people, when you consume alcohol leads to bad things, whether it's violence or sexual assault or anything, all of the data that shows alcohol related problems. So um, I think we need to broaden the conversation to, to talk about, you know, those people, it's all of us. We all consume substances, of some sort, you know, in the broadest definition from coffee to meth, you know, um, and they have impacts on our bodies. And, and once we can accept that, um, that substances play a role in humans' lives, I think we can then have an honest conversation about how to deal with, um, with the potential for problematic, uh, issues that occur with that use. So, um, I'll pause there. Thank you. Oh, go ahead, Emily. Is that okay? No, go ahead. Um, so, you know, thinking about all that we have done already um, and that we used to be sort of, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the Rolling Stone cover um, and, you know, and Shumlin administration's courage in talking about this um, and sort of revealing our, um, our cards and our struggles and then really making plans to do something about it. Um, and how it's not, not, not enough anymore, right? That like we did some really great stuff and the world has changed around us. And so in talking to um, someone local in my community who has been working on these issues for a really long time um, in a medical capacity, um, he was saying that he really thinks that he's seen a decrease that like we're actually on the other side of a wave but what's happened is on the other side of like in terms of new people um sort of coming into really intense use but on the other side of that wave what we've seen is a hub and spoke model that doesn't work the same way it used to um, because a lot of the services have been privatized and are not collaborating with each other at the community level um, are much less accessible because of that um, folks who, and because the drug supply mm -hmm. is so, so different with a much, much shorter high um, that causes, you know, a need to go out and find more, more often um, and much less safe. And so the impacts, um, like all that we did was good. And we need to sit back down and say, like, what do we need to do to 
make this really meet the need that we're sitting with right now of a very different drug supply and a very different medical environment available to us. Yeah. That's what I, and I've been really like in the midst of that and in the midst of like some really intense rhetoric and fear um, that we're seeing all over the place um, that I think in some ways in sort of our more, um, lefty liberal environments like Burlington and Brattleboro. I think sometimes our sort of do-gooder impulses keeps us from having the kind of honest conversations that we need to move through our fear and talk about our fear well enough to get to real solutions. Um, But I am heartened to see that the legislature does seem to be sort of continually, as people recognize the impacts on their own lives and the lives in their communities, I see people really actually showing up to start shifting what we're thinking about. Yeah. Can I, I just wanted to, is it okay? to? Yeah, just, yeah no, that was, that was like a non-question. It was a prompt. No, for you, I, guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, the two things, one on, on drug supply. I mean, that's the best example. Uh, the dangers of our drug supply are, are astonishing right now. And the dangers were increased if not, directly caused by uh by the war on drugs by criminalization so when we went after poppy growers the people went from heroin to fentanyl and then we're going after the fentanyl labs and they go from fentanyl to xylazine and there's an adjustment there you know um stimulants now actually are one of the biggest uh folks are are shifting to smoking stimulants um uh, you know, meth and crack and other has have resurfaced. So, um, you know, if we want to have these conversations about uh, about the harms, we should look at where those harms are coming from. One thing that um, I think hopefully we can all coalesce around are policies that have you know positive impacts both on the sort of concerns of the community and and don't get me wrong needles and in, in public and and people consuming um in public there's dangers associated with that the dangers to the individuals consuming in an unsupervised environment probably is the highest danger and and so um for those 266 people that were lost in vermont i mean they they are facing the most danger out of anyone in the community so Hopefully we can coalesce around some policies like overdose prevention centers where, you know, that can address some of the concerns around having needles in the community, having people consuming unsupervised. Uh, I know in On Point in New York where they're doing operating a overdose prevention center, they've collected two million pieces of hazardous waste since, since they've been operating and they've reversed over 1,100 overdoses. The vast majority they've reversed without ever calling um, EMS. And so, you know, that's another issue, but the, the tax on our EMS and first responders, you know, uh, are there policies that can both create actual uh, safety for individuals that are consuming drugs and safety for the community and these sort of quality of life issues that, that folks have talked about uh, get at all of those. And I think there are, but we have to do it from an approach where criminalization is not centered. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I know you need to, to leave soon, David. Um, so we have just a few minutes before that needs to happen. So I want to make sure we focus on, you know, you've mentioned a few things that other communities are doing, but where, where would you like to see Vermont start? Are there specific policies 
that you'd like to see implement or you, you feel should be implemented or other policies that should be done away with at this that we're working with now? Yeah. Um, thanks for the question. Um, well, we've started last year, we passed uh, and, and implemented uh, a drug checking bill which would allow legislation, which would allow people to come and get drugs checked to make sure that there weren't deadly doses of, of fentanyl or other uh, things in the drug. That's a start. Uh, this year, we're going to be having a conversation, I think, a robust one. It's already on the verge of, I think, getting through the house around overdose prevention centers um, and what that looks like. Uh, I think we're hopeful that that's something that that can make it through and communities can start utilizing those um, to address the, a lot of the things that, that we've spoken about. But I thought, I think overall, the end goal that maybe um, it, for a safer community is to do what countries around the world and actually what the UN has recently called on is to look toward the decriminalization of drugs, um, the destigmatization of people that use drugs. Um, Portugal has done that to great success. Oregon, we, I, you know, I, I almost am loathe to talk about Oregon, but I'm actually not because I, I just came back from a conference armed with lots of good information about what's happening in Oregon. We see all these stories about, you know, they decriminalize and overnight the entire society collapsed. And it's like, no, our society is collapsing in these ways. Uh, people lacking housing, people lacking work, people lacking, you know, supports in their lives. That's happening in Oregon. And it's happening everywhere. It's happening here. It's happening in places that have, you know, very uh, uh, criminalized, focused drug policies and less so. So, um, but what is happening in Oregon now uh, as a result of Measure 110 is there are, there's an infusion of $300 million a year in cannabis money that's working on helping people get housing, helping people get job support, helping people um, uh, find treatment. It's, uh, it's there, they are working on the issues from an honest perspective. And I think uh, if you look to places like Portugal, um, where in 2001 they decriminalized all drugs, and they have seen a massive impact uh, on in terms of reduction of harms associated with drugs. Um, and uh, we're seeing that all over the world, Spain, Germany, Italy, folks are taking an approach which, which looks at the evidence um, and says that uh, at the end of the day, criminalization causes more harm. Um, and, and so, um, I think ultimately that's the conversation we need to have with these really positive incremental steps towards that. David, do, how does safe supply fit into that? So I think when people imagine decriminalization, they imagine drug dealers driving around, taking over the city, right? Um, and sort of all of the all of the sense of danger that's looped into that. Um, and I think about some really like incredible prescribers in our community who are willing to sit down with folks um, who are using and saying like, okay, what is the dose of buprenorphine or methadone that you need? And like, how do you need to balance that with maybe some cannabis to make sure that like you are able to moderate yourself throughout your day? Um, and I've heard from some prescribers that like, in some cases, they know that's not enough, that like, they know that some folks like, you know, a consistent 
supply of an opioid, a prescription opioid would make a difference for them to be able to manage their life in a way that really did reduce harm in their community and for their loved ones. How does that fit into the conversation around decriminalization? Yeah, I think that's an important conversation to have. I think there are places in the world that do heroin prescribing. They they prescribe synthetic heroin through the which is dilated, and for people that have continually failed on methadone or I don't know, maybe fails not the good word, they unable to maintain uh, where they want to be in their lives on methadone or suboxone or other interventions. I think that should be an option, you know, a man, I mean, it's just like what works for people to keep them safe um, should be the orientation. I think that we're looking at um, because when somebody's safe, safe and their lives are stable, we're all better off because we're all connected. I mean, if we just took alcohol and cigarettes and applied the punitive approach that we do to other types of drugs, imagine what we would, the conversations we would be having, you know, forced treatment, you, Daniel was talking about AA. Imagine everyone who had problematic alcohol use was forced to go into a drug treatment program, an alcohol treatment program for, you know, would that work? No, we've shown that it's shown that that absolutely doesn't work. But the safe supply issue um, is a big one. And I think it's really important uh, conversation to have. And we should be having conversations about whether heroin maintenance or dilated maintenance or medical uh, maintenance m makes sense for people that that methadone and suboxone doesn't work for. Um, and then ultimately we should have people, and that's why decriminalization is so important. We could have a drug checking program, which says that, you know, you're not going to be arrested if you come and get your drugs checked, but still within the auspices of a criminalized system, people feel that stigma and that concern and that fear. They could lose their housing. They could lose their children. They could certainly lose their job. And so once we get to a point where we acknowledge substance use disorder as a medical condition and not something that people need to be criminally punished for, we can have those conversations like, yes, you can go get your drugs checked to make sure that you're not going to die. Your friends aren't going to die um, if you consume these, um, you know. It's the same thing when alcohol was illegal and bathtub gin and, you know, moonshine and people were dying and going blind. You know, it was the policy of prohibition, which caused that, not the substance itself. So, David, thank you. Um, I realize we need to let you go. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just going to say uh, David Mickle. Ah, sorry. David Wickenberg, uh, thank you so much for being with us. And he is from the Drug Policy Alliance, which I will put their website in the show notes if you want to check out their work. Any thoughts you want to leave us with before we go to break, David? No, I'm I'm so thankful for being here and having this conversation. I think we should, you know, I think this conversation needs to happen all over, um, all over the state. And I'll say yesterday we had a, a um, an event. Uh, it was a webinar that um, uh, around rethinking drug policy in Vermont, and we were so hard. And we heard from leading experts from all over, um, all over the world, all over the country about these issues. Um, uh, and we had, you know, two hundred and sixty plus people sign up for that, and we had, uh, you know, a really robust and interesting conversation about the evidence around these issues. So. Uh, I'll just also give a little plug. I'm also working with a coalition of folks uh, called uh, Decrim Vermont, and it's decrimvermont.org, um, where we're having, you can see um, uh, all the conversations that are happening around these issues 
in Vermont. And I'm going to, I hopefully I can get a copy of this because I want to hear more of what Daniel is going to say, because um, I'm sorry I have to leave, but this has been a really, really great conversation. Happy to come back anytime. Thank you, David. And on that note, we're going to hear from some of our underwriters on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. If you're just joining us, I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps from Brattleboro, and Daniel Quip, who is a select board member in Brattleboro. And we've been talking about drug policy in Vermont. And before the before the break, we had David Mickenberg on the show who shared with us some of the policies in Vermont that maybe aren't helping uh, folks who are dealing with substance misuse disorder. Emily, um, no, actually, I want to start with Daniel, if you don't mind. Please you know, do. Having listened to David's conversation, um, as, as someone who puts policy into place at the select board level. Anything come up for you? Any thoughts? Any aha moments? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot. And I'm glad I took notes and circled a few things. Um, I actually don't want to talk about policy just yet. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk about like, culture and attitudes. Um, because I, think I really that, appreciate that because I'd love to even like bring in some of the select board conversation we had the other day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm not here as a policy expert. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in any of this. I am simply a person that is concerned and wants to do better. Um, um, I would add to that you're you're someone who has shown up, which yeah. means you've shown up at the conversation and you've shown up at the policy table. And I think that's something that deserves acknowledgement too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, You know, so one of the things that David said was this phrase, these people or those people. And that is like a huge piece of it, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a othering um, that occurs. um, And I see it in Brattleboro play out in a kind of discomfort around um, people who look I don't know, uncamped. Um, They are exhibiting signs maybe of addiction. We actually don't know anything about those people's lives. And we live in such a small place. And with some kind of curiosity, we could know. Not everybody needs to know, frankly. But like, you know, we could be doing a better job at being curious about what's actually going on with people Um, and instead of pushing them away to our edges, which is really what that is, that is all I hear from people, you know, get it out of my way, um, get them out of the way, you know, or a kind of magical thinking of, well, maybe they'll all just go away. Right. And one of the ways that people will go away is they will die, um, because we didn't care enough 
um, for them. Um, and but they will be replaced by somebody else. And that somebody may well be your child, your cousin, your friend. Um, and all of these people, right, these people in our town who, and in our state, right, because what David's talking about in Billings, it's the same here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the same in Rutland and the same in Bennington. It's, you know, there's nothing special about any of these places. It's the same problem. Um, we need to, like, stop saying these people and understand that these people are our neighbors mm-hmm. and they are i mean I, I think it goes back to that sort of cheesy like you know somebody's somebody's mother somebody's you know son kind of thing um but that is true and you do not have to i mean we've already spoken about it here that you each have and i have people in my life and your lives who are wrestling with either use that is harmful or use that is you know a an addiction that's out of control or use that is like because of some policies right like use that is not really supported and can't really be um done safely you know so like i went to the 99 restaurant uh yesterday uh for a beverage and some boneless wings i didn't expect them to be boneless and that was a bit of a surprise uh uh, with a friend because that's where like socializing occurs and everybody was well supported and safe in imbibing substances that you know contain alcohol and i had a diet pepsi it was not very exciting um but what's my point my point is that like you know we already have this is maybe a little little glib but like we already have safe use sites for things mm-hmm. like alcohol mm-hmm. um and we have regulated supplies you know um that's true of tobacco as well and you know the the way that the cannabis industry is sort of full um you know unfolding in vermont is kind of interesting um and so you know david talked about like the um the difference between how we treat people who are using illegal drugs and how we treat people that are using legal drugs and those are policy decisions and they're not policy decisions really that I feel like the Brattleboro Select Board has much of a role in, you know, um, they might be state level decisions, but David was even talking about some federal policy that, you know, um, okay, so you go after the the poppy growers, right? And then we move to synthetics and then you go after this kind of synthetic and so things shift. I was having a conversation with um, the person that runs the drug tracking, uh, drug checking pilot program at the AIDS Project of Southern Vermont the other week, and um, the way in which he spoke about how you know um, the chemical composition of things gets altered just enough, right, to stay ahead of what is possible from the regulatory point of view, right, like we are being impacted by policy decisions that are made far away from us and we don't get the opportunity to unravel those policy decisions you know even with our one congressperson and two senators mm-hmm. so i don't know i you know i that these people thing is is a huge huge piece of it for me mm-hmm. you know i i love that emily uh, before the break, brought up the Rolling Stone cover, which I think many of us in Vermont 
may remember of the the person with the maple sugar bucket um and i think the the iv or they were they were shooting up and going back to what you were talking about with culture and and those people i thought that cover was always so powerful because what it was really commenting on was um oh but this is nice picturesque postcard vermont emily we've talked about this before you know pretty things such bad things don't happen in, in pretty places and that um sense of if we don't see it it's not there or it can't happen here it can't happen now it can't happen to us kind of kind of thing and um the pushing people away you know trying to push things back in in the shadows or out of sight uh, so we have the pretty postcard again and how that just doesn't work. Um, and so I I just think that's such a great visual representation of everything you were just saying, Daniel. And our, and our own, I'll add to that, and our own expectations of what a community should be, quote unquote. I haven't cried on the happy hour in a little while. And so um, thank you, Daniel, for that. Um, for really just like anchoring us back in who we are and what we're doing here um, and who we love. I, you know, a whole, a whole generation of kids in our town um, have experienced just like massive losses of loved ones and peers. And, you know, I, my generation has experienced a massive loss of children um, and nieces and nephews. And I, um, You know, I've certainly had folks in my life with significant challenges with alcohol who I are not in my life anymore because I just couldn't handle the impacts. Um, but they're still alive um, and still in community. Um, and this, you know, I think you said it. We had a we were at a select board meeting together on Tuesday night, um, where I think you really brought these issues into stark relief in a way that you just did for us now. Um, and I really appreciated it. I, um, you mentioned there this phrase um, that's sort of gained some currency and I think is really at the core of this, which is, you know, the opposite of um, addiction is connection, right? Um, and what it takes for us to really move past like what does it take for us to move past our biases and um connect with each other and see each other as um, human and deserving of the same care and i think one thing one way that happens is we're individually impacted in a devastating way um and i would rather that not be what it will take mm -hmm. for each of us to move into connection and community um I would rather it be something softer, like a meaningful conversation or, you know, reading a, reading a book <laughs> um, or just, you know, being able to take the time um, to think about what we are really afraid of and um, examine those stories and um, really get to these, you know, um, I think what we try to do here on the happy hour is dive into the sort of the story behind the problems, the stories behind the policy 
and see what are real policy solutions that make a difference um, rather than policy solutions that are responding to our court instincts. Um, Cause I think sometimes I know I can't trust my own instincts um, when they're being driven by fear. And I hope that's sort of how we can go forward with this. Um, and I think that's a big role that the select board can take is really being the conversation holder um, rather than the policy provider, right? Um, and I don't think, you know, we've had other conversations here on the happy hour about how hard it is to have a conversation with Robert's rules of order. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think those conversations necessarily happen at select board meetings. Um, I think they happen when community leaders say we need to talk about this with each other. Um, and then those conversations happen at the library or the fire department or, you know, over some bagels um, or on a street corner, you know. Um, but I think these conversations about sort of who deserves our public space and what it means to use our public space in a way that meets everyone's needs um, is certainly the purview of the select board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we... Before the pandemic, we had an event at the fire department um, that was about the opioid epidemic. Um, and it was a sort of, uh, what do you call it, when everybody's sitting behind a table and there's a bunch of experts. Um, one of those a, things. A panel, panel discussion. discussion? A panel discussion, that's right. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was not behind the table at an expert because I am not an expert. Um, but there were people from healthcare um, settings. There were people from um, organizations like Turning Point. There were people from the retreat, and that was a that feels like a long time ago. Um, it feels like a lot has changed, and I'm not sure actually that much actually has changed. I don't <laughs> yeah, agree. yeah. But I agree um, that it also feels like a lot has changed. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, no, it's true, um, and. So that was convened by the town, right? Mm -hmm. I had imagine it was largely convened by the town as a reaction to people speaking to, say, the town manager or the select board um, about their concerns. Um, and typically we hear from people at the select board level who have, um, you know, a fair amount of, comfort and power and privilege we're not hearing from we're not hearing we very occasionally do and it's actually very impactful when that happens um but you know for, we're not typically hearing from people experiencing homelessness we're we're hearing from somebody who saw somebody experiencing homelessness and didn't like it uh and it's, they didn't like it because it was like messing up the place they, they didn't you know they weren't upset that this person doesn't have a home um and that's kind of like the way in which we hear about drug related stuff as well. Um, we're not hearing from, you know, drug users saying, I need something from the town. We're typically hearing about like the way that folks are impacted. Um, and that's a, that is a moment where I need to kind of like take a bit of a breath and examine my own biases and reactions to things. And that, and that's, you know, I am one person on a five person board mm -hmm. and, you know, um, I think it's important that it's a five person board and that there's a range of perspectives on there. Um, and I also think it's important that each of us shows up in a way that is very honest 
um, and you know, we all took an oath um, to really kind of do right and equal justice by all the folks in the town. Um, and also there are some of us that have constituencies that feel more, you know, that you're more connected with. Mm -hmm. um, and my work as, you know, my actual day-to-day -day job is working at SEVCA, um, Southeastern Vermont Community Action, which is the designated anti-poverty agency for Wyndham and Windsor County. And um, I didn't just fall into that work because something random happened. Like I care about economic injustice. I care about making sure that the folks in our community who have the least are really being heard and supported. Um, but that's not who comes to public participation at a select board meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's hard to think of what the mechanisms are for actually, you know, I talked earlier about having yeah. curiosity about folks in our community um, around drug use. And like, you know, I, we can, I, we're going to hear from the people that are impacted um, in a way where they are say like, you know, upset about finding um, needles in a public park, right? We're going to hear from those people and we need to hear from them. And we need to listen to them and that, you know, what Absolutely. they have to say is real and important and needs action and usually does get action. You know, we have a parks and rec department that cares about having clean parks. And so, you know, knowing that is is important. But we don't typically hear from people um, on the other end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, and and figuring you know, out ways to do that would be good. Yeah. And I don't. I also don't want people to need to sell their humanity to other people in order to get their needs met, right? Mm -hmm. And so I I want robust public participation from everyone in our community. I want folks without economic privilege or social privilege to feel like they have a right to participate um, and they'll be listened to. And I don't, you know, I don't want everyone who is marginalized for whatever reason to feel like they have to talk to like, you know, every random person that walks up to them and tell them their life story so that they can get their needs met. You know, that's just yeah. like a very localized version of poverty porn. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like, that's also like, how do we even bring humanity to the process of bringing humanity to people? Um, I think is a little bit of, Maybe I'm overthinking it. Um, I understand what you're saying. I mean, yeah. you know, like I say, it is very impactful when somebody who doesn't have a lot of power and privilege comes to the select board meeting and tells us something that's maybe a little, a little messy. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't happen often, and they are kind of putting themselves out there, and they can be a lightning rod for um, society's kind of feelings about that problem. You know, the, your feelings about drug addiction largely are now given a focus of an actual individual. Um, and that's that's a tough position to put oneself in. Um, you know, we had the community safety review process that did unearth some information about this. We have not really been able to make good progress with the recommendations from that process. Um, for a number of reasons, but we 
committed this year to finding a path forward on community safety. That was a goal that all five select board members um, got behind. And we're currently working with um, some folks from the state, um, Jim Baker, who was kind of dispatched by the governor, I think, uh, to come down here and look into... Well, we specifically passed legislation to create Jim Baker's role. Well, that's great. Thank you for okay. letting me know. Yes. <laughs> um, and so Jim is currently doing some work that I'm not super aware of um, that is moving towards something that is looking at issues of safety, but from a kind of public health kind of lens, really. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm hopeful that when we kind of get connected with that work, because I, I know that it is sort of beginning already. Um, and I have asked the town manager to loop me in because it's something that I really care about. Um, and I'm like ready to play an active role in that process. Um, but I hope that we can kind of find ways to start having conversations that don't rely on on an impacted individual coming and unburdening themselves of their entire personal history of tragedy, um, you know. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, Jim Baker is a um, police and criminal justice professional. He is not a public health professional. Oh. Um, and I think the folks who led the community safety review process are community health professionals and and participation professionals. And so I, I hope we can really weave together those conversations in a way um, that's what I hope we to. All, we all do, right? We all do our work based on, and we are all living our lives based on the history and the experiences that we've had. Um, and that's what we have in common, that we're all sort of like constantly evolving and shaping our lens based on what we've experienced. Um, and so we need lots of people in a conversation in order to make sure we're seeing the big picture. Mm -hmm. um, we are just out of time. Uh, the conversation always goes really quickly. But I want to leave the last word with Daniel. Um, having heard this conversation, um, the next time you go back to the, the select board, is there anything you would want to bring up or do differently um, going forward? Huh. That's an interesting thing, because the next time I go to the select board meeting, there's an agenda that I didn't set. True, true. You know, um, so the question is, how do you put this stuff on an agenda? Or is there a conversation that needs to be happening, you know, with the town manager, um, you know, and maybe with one other select board member? Um, but I want to come back to what something that David said, you know, he's talking about evidence-based approaches, mm -hmm. right? So like, let, let us be guided by evidence-based approaches. And he also asked a question, you know, um, what is happening in Oregon, right? Mm -hmm. um, like, I I had an impression of what is happening in Oregon from a New York Times article from a couple of months ago. Um, I have a very, you know, rough impression of like what happened in Portugal. And like he talked about Spain and Italy and Germany. And, and so we need to be curious about like other approaches that have been taken elsewhere, you know, and at least the approach in Oregon and the approach in New York um, with the, you know, overdose prevention site like they are within the same legal 
system as ours. And so as a, you know, a select board member is not a, a professional. Um, I have a full-time job, you know, so we need to be gathering evidence and, um, you know, learning about it together so that we can then understand approaches that we might take here. Um, I do not have enough information right now to be able to make good, sound decisions. Thank you. Daniel Quip uh, from the Brattleboro Select Board. It was really wonderful to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Emily, if folks want to learn more about you, where can they go? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to connect with me in a wide variety of ways. And we want to thank uh, Brattleboro Community Television for helping us get the video version of this podcast up on the airwaves, as well as WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can find us there Fridays at 2 or rebroadcast at Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Hey, everyone, have a good weekend. Take care. Thanks, Olga. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye.